Hi everyone. Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it Lessons from Our Living Rooms or Couch Conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when and what do I do when, so that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. All right, welcome everyone. Uh, This is Dr. Laura Anderson with Common Cord Psychology Services, and I am thrilled you are here this week. And I'm extra thrilled because I get to sit and pick the brain and share the passion of a dear friend and a woman who's done a ton of work in the field of adoption, Christine Altwies. Welcome, Christine. Hello, Dr. Laura. I am so happy to be here. <laughs> Tell I always let people introduce them. Like, how do you end up in this chair with me today? Give me a little bit of background about who you are and your relationship to this work. Am I uh, my relationship to you or no, my relationship to this work? Okay. Any my relationship. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll let you say how we know each other. Uh, my relationship to this work is that I fell into if we're talking about adoption, then I, I fell into it 30 plus years ago um, um, as a, an educator and a art historian who didn't know what she wanted to do with her life. And I met a person who was doing the thing and I said, well, I could do that. That sounds fascinating. I love traveling and I love children. And um, so I just started working in intercountry adoption in 1991, which was the time when Russia and China Perestroika was happening, communism was falling apart, and Russia and China were opening up for adoption. 
And so I went to Russia and China and I started programs and I um, built the agency and I took over a few smaller agencies that were here that weren't doing so well. And we became the biggest and only uh, inter-country adoption program here for a while. Others came and went over time, um, but I did that full-time for 30 years. And then a few years ago, um, I realized that there was um, a real lack of support around families and children with trauma and neurodiversity adoption attachment stuff. And so I uh, dusted off my counseling degree and I started a counseling center called Pono Roots Counseling Center. So I now do that 50% of the time and the adoption work 50% of the time. I'm also the mother of five children, uh, two of whom came to me through intercountry adoption. Yes, and all of that wrapped up is what brings us us here today, because I think what we're going to talk about is schools and education. And while both of us, um, you know, have the firsthand experiences around our living rooms and our kitchen table, we're also protective of our kids' stories. So what we talk about today, you know, it, it comes to us through offices over the years and meeting rooms and consults we've been asked to give paired with what we then got to see in our living rooms around this stuff. And, and, um, cause I really think, well, I mean, it's overstating in, in, in a way, like it's one thing to have the theory and it's another thing to actually try to navigate the decision-making or to greet a kid at the end of a school day and collect all that they're bringing home. So today I wanted to talk a little bit and offer tips for, for, you know, parents, takeaways or tips for parents of of kids who have, you know, big attachment loss and the way that that impacts their schooling and, and what needs to happen. So I know this is something you're super passionate about. What, what leads you to, to want to discuss this today? What, what experiences shape how come you're energized around it? I, to say that I am energized is such a great thing. I'm actually like, I'm so energized that I'm trying to do my breathing so I don't explode. Um, I have seen both in the adoption work um, when we do follow-ups um, with families who are um, struggling and even those who are doing really well. And now, as you mentioned in my own life with my children and also in the counseling center, I have seen consistently that um, no matter what kind of great parenting is being done at home, that far too often school becomes a toxic, scary uh, place for children and then families, and that families are often feeling misunderstood um, and unsupported, and that they're trying to navigate alone often. They're often having to make cases for their children to school administrators, staff, even counselors. Um, and I got to say that a lot of the educational professionals that I've interacted with have the best intentions and the biggest hearts and so much desire to help every child who comes into their care, but also often just a woeful amount of unfortunate ignorance around what attachment challenges mean, how they manifest, what is possible, um, what trauma does to the brain and the ability to function and regulate and, and take on information and, um, you know, do the thing. Um, so just, I feel at this point in history 
we need to revolutionize the schools and we need to be more understanding about the fact that not every child who shows up can do the thing you're asking them to do. And it's not a matter of won't, it's a matter of can't. And it's not a matter of speak louder and slower and give them more whatevers. It's a matter of maybe they need a different kind of guidance and a different kind of education. And the one size fits all curriculum we have and the expectations that every child will sit down, pay attention and, you know, spit back the information on the timeline provided. It's just, it is hostile and it is abusive and it is counterproductive to most of these kids. I'm talking without taking a breath, but I'm almost done. Most <laughs> of these kids who eventually get through it with or without a degree, but often without any self-esteem or shred of self-respect or confidence left. We are literally beating up and abusing our children, trying to get them through the system, which at the end of the day, most adults agree, <laughs> uh, was probably more about the social piece than the academics anyway. How many of us actually can do the trigonometry or the advanced calculus when we're staying in the grocery store trying to figure out how much this costs and we can't even do basic math and we joke about it, yet we go home and we try to get our kids through this math. So so that's perfect in terms of, because the rant aside, I mean, I think what I what's so complicated when I talk about this stuff or think about it is right there's no there's certainly no singular adoptee story and there are all kinds of kids navigating learning in different ways and we do know that there are a much higher percentage of kids or, or adopted children are overrepresented in specialized support systems in schools. Um, so it isn't to say that all adoptees are inevitably going to have challenges at school. It is, in fact, to have the conversation about often that when a, a child, no matter the age, either through very stressful pregnancy and or early placement and or later placement, if there are things that happened, including lots of different stressors and loss of that attachment figure, it, it shapes not only brain functioning, but brain structure in some ways. And, and it's really a complicated conversation to have with parents and teachers to understand two things. We're not saying there's brain damage. We don't want people to interact with our kids like they're damaged in in some way, but we're also not making excuses. And those are the two things that I find really challenging to hit that sweet spot in the middle that when I talk about um, ways that are challenging for kids or get the parents at schools to, I mean, the parents I work with to talk about, we, we, we don't want the world to approach our kids as if they're broken, but we also know we can feel, I don't know if this has been your experience, you get, I can feel the, the sort of patronizing head nods of, of people like, oh, yeah, I hear you making excuses for your kid. And so often they think it is a, a, a won't, right? How... Have you had, where do you, where do you think the teaching, I mean, here you're saying you have to revolutionize. What do you, how do we work with the system that is until it's revolutionized or what are your ideas for revolutionizing it? I think the number one thing is that, and I, I like what you say, let me just back up for one second, that I am now very careful to actually not say adoption and foster care because the common thread, the common denominator, the issue isn't 
the adoption fact, it's the trauma and the attachment. So I think we can say, you know, it's trauma and attachment, and that then touches a lot of kids, even kids who are, you know, raised in biological families. Um, so it's the trauma and attachment piece. And as you said, different brain, you know, wiring as a result, um, different, you know, ability to regulate or not regulate your system, you know, different different ways to understand that adrenaline can, you know, course through your central nervous system and stop your brain from working properly. Um, you know, there's just so much that so many people think of as, as you said, excuses. So I am aware that I am considered uh, a parent and an advocate who makes excuses in their minds, and I don't care. And I lead with that. You know, you can think that I am way too soft. Fine. You know, at the end of the day, I have one goal, and it's to get my kids through childhood as happy and unscathed and mentally sound as possible. And I I don't care if you think that's a waste of everyone's time, but I'm not going to sacrifice my kids' mental health for a grade or for a diploma. And I say that, you know, I got to tell you right up front, teachers, um, my kids' mental health matters more than his grades. You know, that's my goal. He's got to get through this feeling good about himself. So how do we make that happen? Yeah. And and I think that, and as you said, people, even, even the well-intended folks who think we'll just slow it down or we will give, you know, give the, we'll give extended time, which just turns out. Oh, my favorite, my favorite. Yeah. Extended time is a thing you still can't do. Even if you give him four days, you can't do that 10 minute task. Nope. <laughs> Not going to happen. Or, or, and then they make it indefinite extended time. So now you have nine things from different classes <laughs> on an extended time frame that aren't going to get done and only yeah. cause more stress, which makes them less capable of doing the things they couldn't do. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. It's super, super challenging. What, what questions do you think parents, I mean, most of my audience is parents, although, uh, although there's certainly other clinicians, uh, what, if you're talking to clinicians or parents, what questions should we be asking of schools if we know, um, that we have a, a child with a trauma or attachment loss history who's struggling? Well, I'm glad you asked that. And I realized I didn't even answer your last question, but let me just say it, I think we have to go in understanding that we're going to be that parent and we got to own it. So, you know, the schools dread us. God bless them. They're already overworked and understaffed. They hate people like us because we just make life more difficult for them. But So you got to kind of own the fact that we are going to be the difficult parent. That's the first thing. Um, I think we have to know the laws. Unfortunately, we have to know what laws are on our side. And in Hawaii, we have fabulous laws and there are also federal laws that protect our children. So that's the other thing. You've got to be ready to pull that out. Um, you have to be able to ask for what your child is legally obligated to receive. Um, and you have to be willing to be pushy. And I also am very cognizant of complimenting all the time because there are so many really great counselors, teachers. And anytime you get somebody who even gives you a few minutes of you know, time on the phone or or shows any kind of interest in, in your child or wants to get to know or is curious about your child, that needs a lot of applause um, because I recognize that they have a thankless, difficult job. Um, so it's not their fault. Um, it's the system's fault at this point. Um, so lots of praise, which is genuine, um, and then lots of reminding people what the law requires. Um, 
So IEP, 504, you know, whatever SCED stuff you can get, special accommodations, um, you know, you need that. Um, the other thing that I want to just sort of remind parents about, and this came up the other day, is the parents sort of said, like, well, we teach our kids that hard work pays off and that, you know, hard work will get you to where you want to go in life. And, you know, you need grades in order to advance. And all these people tell me, you know, I pushed my kid hard and now look how great he is. And to that, I say, um, just because we did things a certain way forever doesn't mean that's the right way. We can think of countless examples in human history where people behaved deploringly. That's not a word. Appallingly. (laughs) Deplorably. (laughs) We have done a lot of messed up things as a group of you know, living, breathing creatures that have deeply harmed others. And we did it in the name of, well, that's how it's done. Um, And so maybe our education and parenting systems are two systems that are, you know, ripe for some overhaul. Yeah, that whole concept of, I want my kid to be able to persist. They have to learn and, and deliver. And I do think it gets to the, that fundamental can't versus won't. Uh, you know, you could uh, have a stopwatch and train me over and over and over again for days and I would never run fast. We drive both of us crazy and I'd feel like an awful human if you expected me to be able to run fast. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> Lots of coaching, other things. Sure. Balance forever. Run fast. No. So there, you know, it's like, how do we how do we work with with schools so that we're all we invite people to think flexibly about helping our kids have success that doesn't mean you know this whole concept of just give a trophy to everybody that they should never have anything that they actually need to do it's like making sure that that we are tapping into strengths um, that we figure out when kids are at their best and do more of what that takes. If they learn through videos, what can that look like? If they're best delivering things in language, what does that look like? Um, it, it just, just, and that's without revolutionizing everything, but this idea that more, more of the same is going to lead to a defeated child. And by the way, in my practice, I also see plenty of folks, neurotypical and otherwise, who were molded into really successful, standardized educational learners and fell apart in their 30s because they had to have autonomy and creativity. And actually, there there was an argument that that wasn't necessarily the best way to contribute overall and that that was incredibly stressful to have to meet those expectations all the time. So when we're looking at what we hold up as success, um, it doesn't mean that we expect less of our kids. It means we expect different uh, and that we expect that they'll get there on a different path. How, how do you talk to teachers about what, like, cause there's an education piece clear an education to the educators piece. And then parents have to buy in too. I spend a lot of my time. And I don't know if you've this too, like working with parents where it takes us as parents a while to see that we need to interact differently with, with kids, some of our kids who've had trauma histories than not. Right. So the first piece is parents themselves have to believe that this isn't their kid just being difficult, just wanting control, just being lazy and all these other words that pop up when our kids can't deliver in school. What kinds of resources or things do you find to, that helps parent under parents understand the brain science and education? 
Yeah, and you mentioned before that you're loath to use brain damage. I jump on that. I don't mind. Like, I will talk about brain damage because I think, you know, brain damage, and, you know, of course, we do want to be careful about the child's perception of it, but I think people need to understand that it is brain damage and that, you know, it's not, it is is nothing short of a physiological, neurological condition that cannot be manipulated. Um, And I know you agree. I can see you nodding. Um, so yes, so no, I just, so, no, and I, and I'll circle back, and then I want you to take off and run again. Yeah, I meant we don't we don't want that pitying, broken approach to brain damage. What we want is a recognition that there's been neurological impact, and that the structure of the brain is impacted as well and interfering with learning stuff. But sometimes when I think exactly, if a kid hears brain damaged, or if teachers start doing this bizarre pitying thing, then that doesn't serve our kids. So the sweet spot around recognizing this is a real thing that needs um, creative approaches without approaching them as if they're broken. So that's what I meant. Absolutely. Go ahead, though. (laughs) Yeah. So how do we, I mean, I think it's all about psychoed. I think we have to be willing to, to sit there and potentially bore or upset people by educating them. I think we have to show them the brain and we have to give them diagrams and we have to show the impact and we have to talk about, you know, the regulatory system and trauma and, um, you know, have to just sort of educate about what what the thing looks like in real time in a kid's brain and, you know, explain what it feels like to be this traumatized person who can't regulate and who can't hear and who is, you know, is responding as best they can. Um, the three words, and I, I just wrote a little thing about this, the three words that I would like extricated from the vocabulary of English speaking people with regard to children are lies, manipulation, and lazy. Um, because I think those three words are used so often you know, to, to basically, you know, throw a kid under the bus and it lacks any kind of awareness of what's underneath it. And, you know, um, we know that the brain of a child who lies is more facile and more hardwired for more complexity than the brain of a non-lying child. You know, we know that, you know, what adults consider lies, a child might just create, consider a creative response to avoid getting their head whacked with a slipper, you know, right. by a parent who has repeatedly beat them up for, you know, lying. And the parent says, well, why does he keep lying if he knows he gets beat up when he lies? And you say, exactly. So what does that tell you? You know, his brain is not able to put together what you as an adult see as a foregone conclusion to why you wouldn't lie. Uh, So let's start right there. Um, You know, and the same thing with lazy. Um, You know, a kid is never lazy. A kid may be taking a minute to sit and contemplate his navel or, or think about his traumas or wonder why he can't do the thing that he's being yelled at about, you know, but that's not laziness. That's a child being a child. Like we need to allow them this. And the same thing with manipulations, you know, that he tells the same excuse over and over to get out of this thing. He's manipulating me. No, he is telling the same story over and over because he's hoping you'll get it one day if you keep saying it and, or let's be curious about what's behind it. Um, But, you know, I think these go hand in hand with the educational view of our kids, which is, oh, if they just try harder, you know, uh, they'll get it. Um, And it's not that at all. So I think the answer is owning your stuff. I'm that parent. Here, Here I come, school counselors. Here I come you know, school vice principal, I'm going to be that parent because my child is legally owed an education. 
number one. And I, and I got to say along those lines, having had private school education for most of my kids, for most of my kids' lives, and now being in a public school, I cannot sing the praises loudly enough of that public school and all those folks and what resources the state, you know, makes available. Um, it's been a game changer and I wish I had known earlier and I want everyone to know that public schools can be amazing places. Um, and fortunately or unfortunately, they're also legally mandated to provide what the private schools do not have to. Yep. Be that parent and know the law is what I'd say. Yeah. And I really appreciate the, that, like, and notice your own biases, right? Like, what are you assuming? And when we try, many of us in the world of folks who, you know, when you, lots of kids in the communities that I work in have had lots of running starts at different educational settings because nobody has yet figured out. Every brain is so different. Every, like, no system has the total perfect formula and every kid is different. So all that's true. Lots of folks I know have multiple attempts at, well, this doesn't have this piece, but maybe it'll have that piece and we'll try this without that, but maybe this. And, and, and so, so being able to notice your biases, be willing without hopping your kid around every three months, be open to the idea that there are things that, that you may not have thought about prior to parenting a child who has these differential needs. If your kid does that, it's helpful to mm -hmm. be open to. Um, and I hear, you know, joining with schools about the positive, you're going to be that parent. You're also going to be that parent that recognizes when things are awesome and you'll be that parent who can show up and do that stuff as well. I think what, it, what's really interesting too, that I talked to teachers about, cause a lot of, um, a lot of the other response that we sometimes see from kids with attachment loss is keeping it together. Right? There's two different versions. One is just being dysregulated all over the place at school. The other is muscling through school, barely hanging on, using every ounce of resource they have to kind of get by. They're at least not a behavioral problem at school. But then they come home and completely unravel because and, and feel terrible. Because especially as kids get older, they're recognizing what they're not able to do. They are absolutely. Yeah. And so many, I mean, speaking specifically about adoption, but not only about adoption, I mean, it's the trauma piece that's there, but the adoption piece for many adoptees, uh, I don't know if this resonates with you or not. Like there's such a need to blend in. There's such a need to just be normal. There's such a need to, to not stand out given a history of otherwise standing out based on family formation, et cetera, that, that there are, in, you know, in my experience, they're doing a lot of evaluating of the situation around them. They're hypervigilant for cues and things that are going on. So they're watching and they can see that they're struggling and they can see that they're not able to deliver what is being asked yeah. of them. And it it absolutely eats away at this sense of of worthiness and intelligence and belonging that is already a fundamental part of work for people with attachment loss and trauma. Do you, do you see that as well? Absolutely. And thanks for saying that, because I think I was, I was just going to mention that the parenting piece is so crucial, like self-care for parents. I mean, it is so stressful to be the parent of a child who tantrums every time they have an assignment they don't understand or who feels like they're not going to be able to deliver what's asked of them. Um, you know, so that parent care piece is so important and and just being endlessly patient with your child when they are 
unraveling, tantruming, you know, that it's not, it's not behavior intended to make your life miserable. It's a behavior that comes out as the only behavior optional at that point from that person, you know, that the, the children are doing the best they can uh, to express. But on that note, I would say um, it is not unusual and it is becoming increasingly uh, problematic that child protective services is often now also involved. So it's something that parents need to be aware of um, if they haven't had the misfortune already of having CPS called on them. Um, but what we're hearing is that parents who have children with trauma attachment challenges, um, the schools are often seeing behaviors uh, and calling the authorities worried that the child is being neglected or abused. Um, I've had this happen far too often, and then the parent gets targeted. Um, and sometimes the caseworker will be, you know, understanding about attachment or trauma or adoption. But unfortunately, very often, uh, there is ignorance about what that looks like. And so parents of attachment challenged or traumatized or post-institutional children um, may want to address that with the school early on that, you know, my child tends to tantrum or this is how my child handles things or if you know if you notice this or that you know let's have conversations um yeah you know far too often cps gets called wow and that's interesting because there there really is this sort of system in my experience system-wide assumption that that okay you know attachment loss traumatic events are upsetting when they happen and if kids, you know, are in a safe place for six months to a year, <laughs> like you'll be good to go. So if a child is still, still quote unquote, demonstrating really challenging behaviors or describing, you know, the, then, then like something must be wrong at home because sure this kid was adopted or sure this kid isn't, um, you know, tricky, but that was years ago or whatever that changed that family lost that family was years ago. And, and, um, it just, Again, it doesn't show an understanding of the brain science around this stuff. And so, right, front-loading front for teachers. I think because there's also a piece where it's, it can be intimidating for parents. You don't want to go sit in a school team meeting and air all your laundry about all the things that are tricky at home. But but being able to acknowledge like, hey, regulation is a thing, even describing the behaviors as dysregulation, right? Like regulation is a thing. And and yes, they can barely make it through school. And then I spend the rest of the evening dealing with the fallout of of that assignment that they walked around the classroom for the whole period instead of doing, and now I'm supposed to be helping them get, and they have no idea what they're supposed to do. And so you may hear that we're in conflict at home and I'm going to choose my child's mental health over getting this yeah. assignment done, right? Like I, I, yeah. I just am. And so, and, and I'm thinking of the marathon. I know you have your responsibilities, you know, sixth grade math teacher. I know you have benchmarks you need to meet. I respect that. I'm doing the marathon view of this and I'm watching my kid wilt and I, you know, some kids withdraw and other kids explode and, and I'm, I can, you know, I, I appreciate what you have to get done and we've got to think about ways outside the box that can get done. So what have you seen actually be helpful for kids in the school? So if parents are asking what kinds of things have you, and there's no one formula, but what kinds of things have you seen be helpful? for kids in school. Yeah, so unfortunately it comes down to the individuals working at the school, right? Because, I mean, as you said, they have got their 
um, lists that they have to check off. They've got to make sure that no child is left behind. <laughs> um, so as a result, they they are, you know, they're under the gun too. So, you know, uh, acknowledging that right off is super important. I know you have a job to do. You know, what's the minimum that you need from my child? Like I put it just that bluntly. What is the bare minimum we can eke out to get us through this. And I say, I don't care if he gets a C minus, he just has got to pass, right? Or she just has to get, you know, what's what's passing? Is D plus passing? Let's take it. Like, we don't care. What do we need to do? And then to be super honest, sometimes I just help with the work at home. Sometimes I'm like, you know, you. one time my kid had to memorize like 150 words from, you know, ancient Babylon, like the most arcane vocabulary list. So literally, I didn't know what any of the words meant. Uh, you know, I'm like, how, how does this help you be a more productive, happy, balanced human? I have no idea, but okay, we're going to go for it. You know, kid could not get it done. I couldn't get it done. You know, so in that case, I called the teacher and I said, you know, about this 150 word vocabulary list. Uh, you know, what can we do? And, you know, the teacher said, you know, draw a drawing. I need a drawing that demonstrates knowledge of this period of history. Great. Did it. Done. So sometimes you go to the teacher and you just be real specific. You know, what do you need from us to get this done? And then you do it. And as I said at the beginning, I have long ago, and I advise the parents of this, like giving up the idea that the modern American education is so life or death crucial that your child will be somehow, you know, not set for life if they don't get it. Yeah. You know, go traveling for six years with your kid. I'm good. Like, that's a good education as far as I'm concerned. And it's changing all the time. And it's changing all the time, like more and more, all this AI development stuff where they'll just be able to have like six keywords and create. I mean, like it's it's the the standardized route that many parents who pride themselves on doing well in education and having educational opportunities is changing. And 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 so even more so this idea that that being able to produce in this particular way opens doors, which will mean success. I mean, some of the and some of the most interesting adults I've met had the windiest path through educational systems as well. I think, yeah, the the ability to recognize like it really. And this is what I say to a lot to teachers and parents. If what you if you want to know what they know then you got to figure out how to ask what they know. Like what, what is it? Like you have to recently. Yes. And for those of you who, you know, who know my, my kid is very into fashion and had recently a reading comprehension assignment that he had to do about a book that was in the nineties had nothing to do with fashion, early nineties or something like that. The book had nothing to do with fashion. And there was a long drawn out process around reading comprehension. And ultimately uh, in what was going to be a written essay turned into, <laughs> turned into a, a slideshow of the, his choice of topic, which the teacher thankfully worked with him in a very individualized way around. And he created an entire in-depth slideshow of the, and I quote, um, nineties old money preppy look. <laughs> 
I'm like, I think we, you know, yeah, it was really funny. I'm like, the what? I mean, and the teacher was in just, I've never used that terminology. I mean, I have no idea. So, so, and it was this awesome thing. And even the teacher, this was a teacher who was new to him. And she came back to me afterwards. She was like, I could not believe, I'm like, I know. And it isn't just, this is the thing that gets me to, this is another phrase I'd like to see um, disappear when he wants to, he can, um, or, you know, when it's, oh, so when it's something he's interested in and I'm like, no, no. I mean, sometimes that motivation will help kids push through tough stuff. Sometimes if you're tapping into an area that they're really interested in, they're pulling from old knowledge because they've retained it, because they've learned it in different places and researched it in ways. So you're going to get delivery of information about something in an area of interest that you might not. But it, when I hear, when somebody says, oh, so if they're really interested in it, they can do it. I hear won't. I hear when they're willing, um, when it's something they like, then they choose to deliver. And I'm like, that's, that's not fair. It's so reductionist to, right. to, to do that. So, so what, some of the things that work, like expect in working with teachers, if you're a parent listening in here or a clinician, can they give you the answers out loud? Can they do it in a slideshow? Can they draw a picture? Can they come show the class a demonstration of making grilled cheese or whatever else they do well? Like, what are the yeah. ways that we um, that we can, if you're truly trying to figure out what they've comprehended or what knowledge they're holding about the subject area, then there has to be an invitation to be creative uh, around yeah. the ways that they can best tell you that kind of stuff. Um, and I can hear all of the um, the pushback, you know, because if the system were to start to accommodate every different learning style, they would just, you know, they wouldn't know what to do with that. But I think you got to be looking at, and this is where the revolutionary thinking part comes in, is like, what is our actual goal here? You know, do we need kids to just memorize and, and recite back a whole bunch of meaningless babble? Or do we want kids to be passionate and excited and understand their own capacity and harness their own interests when they can? Um, you know, and, you know, is that what we're aiming for? And I think at this point, we're so far away from that. We're so far from that, especially with all the recent standardized leases and benchmark that's and having to meet state standards, you know, and competing for federal dollars based on statistics of test scores. Like we are just creating the opposite of that. Um, but hopefully if enough parents are willing to come to the teachers and to the school administrators and be that parent, um, you know, then hopefully... At some point, a thousand years from now, we'll see some change. <laughs> well, and it's Sorry to be <laughs> no. I mean, I think again, when you're in it and you've watched kids and heard families sit in your office and talk about it and and just think we six more years you know like we've just got to get you know and and just and and also too as somebody who values education and you know benefited from some tremendous educational opportunities and i'm like the heck with school you know homework schmomework let's go swim you know kind of a thing is like it's it there is a big there's a big shift and the, and finding the right setting i think is really tricky in terms of parents will very often often ask, is it public? Is it charter? Is it? And I'm like, it really, 
So the public school has the dilemmas of having all of these benchmarks that are so clearly laid out for them. They don't have flexibility that that other schools technically do. And yet they also have this mandate to work with uh, families, you know, legally. So they're held more accountable once a kid's needs are identified for meeting them than private schools are. So, I mean, if you find a private school that isn't bound by those uh, uh, mandates and standardized tests, and will take the time to get to know your kid and and really want to meet them where they're at, you know, that's great. But but you can't assume one or the other is going to be ideal or a better educate. You hear, you know, a better education, you get a better education. And what what constitutes better is different kid by kid, because I think fundamentally teachers I, I and I say this a lot to parents, too, when Imagine when we think about the brain and cortisol and the and or damage and structure and things developing, if you know from the outset that you are going to be bad or ineffective at what you are asked to do all day in front of an audience and be evaluated for it, what would you do? And and I use the example of singing. I'm like, if you put me on American Idol... <laughs> And not just now, now I have a little horror. I won't sing for you even when I don't have a cold. But if I were to do so, like I would say to special education teachers and other people, if you put me on American Idol and asked me to sing in front of an audience seven hours a day, you better believe you'd be getting some really bad behavior from me. I would fight you tooth and nail. I would avoid, I would be sick. I would be really quiet and then I'd be fighting with people. I, I mean, I I would not be able to stay regulated because because I was anticipating failure and I was nervous and I was embarrassed and nervousness at, you know, our activated nervous systems look so different person to person that time and time again, I would also encourage parents to keep having conversations with school about what your child looks like when they're nervous, when they're anticipating failure, when they're confused. Confusion often leads to anxiety. So beneath the behaviors, the shutting down, the withdrawing, asking too many questions, never asking a question is probably anticipated failure and or confusion and nervousness, understand what your kid does in that situation and then try to communicate that with schools. I don't know if that, does that resonate with what you see from families as well? It resonates so much. And it reminds me of my other favorite rant topic, which is the overdiagnosis of ADHD instead of PTSD or trauma and how many kids are being medicated and how many work with kids say, well, he's got ADHD as if that's sort of like, okay, we're just going to toss him away because, you know, he can't pay attention, focus, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's such a missed opportunity to say, you know, what's the trauma or attachment challenge that's behind this? Why is he being distracted? Why is there a lot of energy? You know, why is the child not able to focus as you're needing him to like what kind of different learning style or, you know, I mean, there's so much to that. Um, but I, I thought of one other thing when you were talking, and I can't believe I didn't think of it before in terms of tools for parents, and that in a word is Waldorf. So Waldorf education, the older I get, the more I appreciate um, the what it offers um, to children. And if you don't know what Waldorf is, you can look it up. W-A-L-D-O-R-F. Um, and there are great Waldorf schools and there are some not so great ones. Um, but in general, the, the pedagogy and the curriculum is uh, one where it shares stories 
and uses a lot of art and allows children to learn to think for themselves and doesn't require typically regurgitation of facts and figures, traditional tests, um, you know, any of those project home homework-based projects that drive us all nuts where we have to run to the, you know, to the hardware store or the craft store and spend lots of money to get stuff or <laughs> so over those projects. No offense to both who assign them. Um, but anyway, Waldorf, if you're one of those parents who's looking for something amazing and alternative, um, you know, I can't say enough about how great some of the Waldorf schools are, and that's an international system, sometimes called Steiner schools, Anthroposophy, Waldorf. Um, it's a great system for many kids who, uh, yeah, you know, kids who do well in traditional schools and kids who don't. Yep. And I think that's another, it's a great place to also frame as we kind of wrap up another strategy for parents um, is how to talk to kids about it. How, how to not shy away from saying, because to pretending your kid doesn't know they're struggling, pretending that you're, that if they were, if everybody works harder or, or, it, you know, school's just hard, like instead framing the thing is it's, it's not that you can't do school. It's that standardized learning isn't the best way to get at what you know. Like it, standardized learning doesn't work for everybody. It may work for this person, you know, it didn't work for uncle so-and-so it didn't work for any, like it's, it is a system of ideas that have been put into place and we're kind of, you know, marched through it. But if you're, it's that fundamental stuff, so much of my work, you are not the problem. Trying to work in a system that is designed for a certain style of learning is stressful because the system of style of learning has its limitations. There are all these things you do beautifully. There are, you know, things that, and I mean, literally there are things you can do that kids, that me, I was a standardized learner and I can't do half the stuff that you can do at this age, at your age, or even now I can't do many of the things you can do. And I would have been that kid sitting there delivering, right? And yet I don't have the ability to do many of the things you're doing. And so being able to have nuanced conversations with your kids about like hey i see you working we're being creative we're trying to figure out the formula where you can shine and i often say to the school staff i want my kid to love himself and like learning that's what i want and the rest you know like like we'll we'll figure it out we're gonna figure it out and so and and again with respect to teachers it's hard i couldn't it's hard we know how hard it is to regulate and work you know at home in a small group let alone in a big group when you've got kids working through this stuff so it is respect to school staff and people who've signed up to be part of the system to to do well within it it, we just need to keep pushing this conversation around creativity, alternative learning, maximizing strengths, noticing the messaging we're giving to kids about if they cannot, why not? Um, and, and I think truly recognizing what cortisol and you know, over, I call them overachieving nervous systems. Oh, your nervous system's overachieving. <laughs> it goes on. I'm like, you have a, yes. you're, you know, like a car alarm that goes off in the wind. You have the windiest alarm system ever. Like it's sort of joking with kids and they like that. I'm like, oh my, your nervous system is at the front of the race. Anything will, will, will set it off. And it just kind of has you alert and that makes it harder to learn. I mean, fundamentally when a system is agitated when a system is aroused when a system is 
um, uh, dysregulated, it's really hard to retain information. So let us know where, where can, can folks, so you're at Pono Council, where do folks find you? Are there other resources? Where can they look you up um, if they'd like to learn more about your work? Uh, so we've got two organizations. One is called A Family Tree, as in a family tree, and the other is ponoroots.org. So they're both .org, a family tree, and Pono Roots. And if you're not from Hawaii, Pono means righteous and correct and all sorts of other wonderful things. Um, so Pono Roots is the counseling center. Yeah, and I really, it's wonderful to be able to to share and refer, and there's there's just there's our yeah our kids just need us to keep getting this writer and writer and we need parents to understand how they can advocate at schools and not be afraid of being the squeaky wheel and not assume the situation that their kid is in is the best that it's going to get so you know let's see what we can get our kid to do different you know, do in a different manner. It's really working as a whole team to try to figure out how to bring out the best in your kid and how you're talking to them about it. It's really important to come up with a language around, you know what, give it your best shot and then let's go do this or let's go do that. Well, let's see, could you ask the teacher about a different way of doing things? Just engaging them in in how to figure out the ways to deliver what they know and take what works for them and shake off the other pieces while the rest of us try to figure out how to upend this whole gig. <laughs> yeah. And parent self-care and parent regulation and, you know, so important because our kids are watching and feeling us. So if we're dysregulated and we're, you know, not doing our breathing, then they're going to get a little bit jacked up too. So be aware of your own needs. And also, you know, there's so much judgment. There's, you know, I know now that I'm the kind of parent that most people look at and go, oh, my God, overindulges her kid, gets manipulated by her kid, way too liberal, way too, you know, way too money excuses for her kid. Stop judging other parents. You know, parenting is hard. And if you know a parent who's struggling, you know, give them a thumbs up because it's really hard to, to do this well. And there's a lot of judgment and criticism for anything that's not you know, standard. So and be that, aware of that, I think. Yeah. And that's a beautiful place to end in terms of the last piece, truly seeking community that there it's pretty amazing when you find yourself in the room with or online spaces with folks who, who get it and who aren't doing that judging and who are curious about imagining, understanding things in a different way and connecting with their kids differently and like finding a community of parents who are, who are, um, walking this walk, I think is super powerful as well. It, it's wonderful for everybody. If we're not, if we're not centered and balanced, then yeah, the whole temperature in the house goes up and the kids sense they're disappointing us as well as the school all day. So find your people, take your breaths and find Poto Roots and or a family tree. And thanks, Christine, for being here today. It was so nice to see you and hear you. Thank you, Laura. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. Just a quick note here at the end to say I am so glad you joined and I hope you are too. And if you'd like to connect with me more, come take a look at my website, www.drlauraanderson.com 
www.thepodcastmag.com. There you can join my newsletter, keep in touch, and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation uh, and Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places, and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today. <laughs>